once again, as I do, and I don't do it <clears throat> out of rote, but I really mean this. Thank you so much for being here this morning. As we continue to journey through, remember what we're doing. We're looking at the basic highlights and the major work of God in recovering His original purpose in creation. Originally, His purpose was that He would dwell and rule and reign and be displayed as great and mighty with His people upon the earth as His people would obey and walk out the mandates that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And as they would walk in obedience with Him. And so this was the purpose of Adam and Eve having been created and the generations that were to come through Adam and Eve were to be generations of people who obeyed God, who lived the mandates, and who in their community, in their relationships, in their following the Lord's way, they would be spreading from Eden and enlarging Eden and enlarging the place where God would dwell among His people until it covered the entire earth. That was God's purpose. So that one day, heaven and earth would be one. But you remember, sin came in. And so as a result of sin, God was not thrown off guard. He was already ready for this. As a result of sin, then God continued with His purpose that He implemented in Genesis 1 and 2, knowing what would happen and continue now in a way to show us through types and shadows, through people, through circumstances, through institutions, through nations, through all of this, He was showing us and He continues to show us throughout the Old Testament that I am going to bring about my purpose and I am going to have a day when my people and I will dwell together upon the earth as one people with their God. And so as we move through the Old Testament, we see movement after movement and expansion and explanation <clears throat> and getting closer and closer to the time when God will accomplish this. And you remember in Genesis 3.15, He will accomplish this through the seed of the woman. And so throughout the Old Testament, we will see this contest between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in opposition, the serpent opposing the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman in the Old Testament being a general seed, a nation, a people, and being narrowed down this morning to a particular king and his line. And we will see within the next couple of weeks that the seed is none other than a man himself who will be the last Adam who will completely and absolutely and perfectly fulfill God's purpose that he had in the original Adam and so that in this Adam all of God's purpose will be fulfilled and his people will become the people of God in God's place for God's worship. So remember, that's what we're looking at. 
And so as we travel through this this morning, let's remember we are doing this in retrospect, looking at Genesis 1 and 2 and seeing how is God fulfilling his purpose. Everything you read in the Old Testament, everything you read in the New Testament until we get to Revelation 21, everything you read in the Old Testament, everything you read in the New Testament until we get to Revelation 21 is a movement toward completion. And so let's make sure we see this Bible of ours not as individual books and a collection of stories and events and people here and there, now and then. But let's make sure we see it as a tapestry, as a knitting together of all of this information into a great picture, which at the end of it will declare the greatness and the glory of God, but the greatness of, and the glory of God within and through His people. Amen? That's where God is going. So I encourage us again today, and even as we go in service at 10 o'clock in the morning and we sing songs and we hear sermons, let's make sure as we're singing songs and hearing sermons that we're recognizing this is what God is doing, moving us forward to the completion that we see in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. And then this will allow us to see our Bible in a totally different way, in a way that God intends us to see His Scripture as one great presentation of His glory. So this morning, having said that, and, and I know I do that mostly every Sunday morning in here, I kind of give us an encapsulation, an encapsulation. Why? Because we need to hear it over and over and over again to make sure it gets into us as a natural spiritual activity of us recognizing what the Word of God is and being ministered to by that Word. So remember, last week we saw that God's ability to dwell among His people in the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle is moving the purpose of God and the manifestation of how and what he's going to do. It is moving it forward from the altar now, the tabernacle, and we went through that. And God's ability to dwell in the tabernacle, remember, rested on two issues, two issues. How many goats? We saw in Leviticus 16, two goats, two goats, two issues. The issue first of atoning sacrifice for the satisfaction of the wrath of God. First, the wrath of God must be satisfied. That is the primary prerequisite for God having a people of His own. His wrath because of our sin must be satisfied. Why? Because God is a God of justice. And so He cannot and He does not sweep sin away and just winks at it and pretends it's not there. He is a God of justice. Otherwise, not doing this would violate Himself, and He cannot and He obviously does not violate Himself. So that is called propitiation. Remember the, the drawing of the cross on the back of our notes last week. The upward, what is that, horizontal or vertical? That's vertical, isn't it? The vertical post of the cross, propitiation between us and God, God's justice and His wrath being satisfied by the blood of the shed animal. And then as a result of that, the, remember the priest, how is that done? Goes into the tabernacle with the blood once a year on the Day of Atonement, having made sacrifice for his own sin. So he, without sin, if you would, goes into the presence of God, makes sacrifice 
propitiation. Then he returns to the people and he lays his hand. You remember in Leviticus 16, he lays his hand on this second goat, the first one having been slain, on the second goat, confesses the sin of the people on that goat, and that goat is sent into the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat and the scapegoat is a picture of expiation where because of the blood of the lamb and the wrath of God having been satisfied the propitiation now God justly can remove our sins from us as far as east is in west east to west and we see that in the goat that is being removed from the people going out in the wilderness and dying out there now the mercy of God can come to us and so propitiation and expiation, the whole work of the cross, we see all of that typified and, and uh, symbolized and acted out in the Old Testament sacrificial system. <clears throat> now this morning we turn our focus, begin to turn our focus to the temple, which is again the next stage, if you would. Altar, then remember the tabernacle in Exodus, and now we'll begin to look toward the temple as God continues His revelation, but in an expanding way so we can get a much greater understanding of what God is doing and how God exactly will do this. So we turn our focus to the temple in Jerusalem, which took, which took the place of the tabernacle. And we're going to look at David, whom God uses to make the construction of the temple possible. I want to go through this material as quickly as I can, but as succinctly as I can. And I'm going to leave out 99% of the things that I would like to say about David and only highlight one or two or three issues that I think are salient to us today, hopefully to give us a glimpse of what this man's life and ministry is saying to us about the seed of the woman. You see, when we look at David, what is this saying to us? Not just David and a king and a guy running around doing exploits, but what is it saying to us about God's way of redeeming his people? Remember, how is God using David to picture and move forward to the place where he will fulfill his promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent's seed? Remember in Genesis 3.15, so today we'll see something about that in King David. So first of all, David represents the man who will, the seed, the man who will prepare the way for the building of God's heavenly temple where God and man would dwell in fellowship forever. So this morning I'm proposing this, that David will be the representation of getting everything ready for the construction of the temple. That is the ministry of David. Everything being gotten ready so the temple can be constructed. He represents the king who will fulfill God's original domain mandate of Genesis 1.28. Remember, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. Those two mandates in Genesis 1.28. Well, David, now we're seeing that dominion now not only comes through a people, but will be coming through a specific person, a king. Now, what does dominion mean? It means rule. It means the kingdom of God. And when we say the kingdom of God, what does that obviously bring to our mind? There must be a king over the kingdom. And so David begins to let us know that God's way of Redemption, God's way of restoration will be through a king, a man 
who will lead God's people and rule over them in the name of God as God's representative on earth. So after the Lord, you remember in 1 Samuel, some of you may have read the book, maybe some of you saw the movie. After the Lord rejected Saul, remember Samuel and Saul? After Saul disobeyed, the Lord rejected Saul as king over his people. He instructed the prophet Samuel in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, verse 1. He says, fill your horn with oil. Remember that big oil horn that they would pour on people to anoint them in the name of the Lord. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse of Bethlehem. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so all of a sudden now we begin to see that the nation needs a king. We've been through hundreds of years of judges since Joshua, Moses, Joshua, and these judges. And now it becomes pretty evident that Israel, God's people on the earth, cannot and will not be the kind of people that would display the glory of God and move God's purposes forward unless they have a king. And so what was so important about the house of Jesse? Why the house of Jesse? And you notice, remember when we started off in Genesis, the seed of the woman is very large. And as we move through, the seed begins to be narrowed down, narrowed down to families, and then narrowed down to clans. And then today we'll see that the seed begins to be narrowed down to a particular family. And then we'll see that in that family the seed begins to be narrowed down to a particular person. The seed of the woman is that people who are about God's purpose, who are walking with God for the accomplishment of His purpose. That's the definition, if you would, of the understanding of the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, or those who are in opposition to what God is doing and oppose where he is taking his seed. So what kind of, a, why Jesse? Well, you remember in Genesis 49, 10, you may, may remember that when Jacob was dying, he gathered each one of his sons together individually and blessed them and prophesied over them. And here's what he said to Judah. He said, the scepter, what is a scepter? That's that staff that represents what? Rule, dominion. Remember kings often walk around with this gold-looking thing in their hand? What does that represent? It means I'm the king. I rule. I'm in charge. So he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So we know that Judah is a tribe through which God will bring forth his redeemer will not depart from Je uh, Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, who's Shiloh? Well, Shiloh was a place, but Shiloh means, we talked about this several weeks ago, he whose right it is, until he whose right it is to rule comes, until the ruler, God's ruler himself, shall come. And to him, Shiloh, shall be the obedience of the people. So why, Jesse? Because Jesse is of the house of Judah. So God is fulfilling a promise through Jacob hundreds and hundreds of years previous, bringing about this work of Samuel to anoint one of Jesse's sons. Now, what kind of a man was God looking for? What kind of a man leads God's people? What kind of people are God's people? 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. The Lord, Samuel says, He's telling Jesse this, what kind of a man that God is looking for. He said, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. A man after his own heart. 
when I hear after his own heart, I think of Genesis 1:26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. It means the same thing, a man after his own heart. A man or woman, a people who will display the heart, the character, the person, the relationship and the roles within God, who will display who God is and how God is. This is why we were created, and this is the kind of man that God will use to be his king to move his his purpose forward until his real king, the king of glory, will come in and deliver his people. So a man after God's own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Now Samuel is talking about David. And the Lord is telling Samuel, this is the kind of man I'm looking for. But David is going to be a picture of this. But when the Lord says this, he's not only talking about David in a typical picturing sense but he's talking about the true redeemer who will be coming so you see the double thing here it is talking about the immediate person of David but it is also a prophecy looking forward to him who will come who will be prince over his people a man after God's own heart in other words a man who has a zeal for the purpose of God a zeal if you would and we'll find this out to build the house of God you may remember if I just said that, do any of you remember a verse in the New Testament about zeal for thy house hath consumed me? John 2.17, for those of you who are aware of what I just said. I'm not sure if everybody understood that, but I just threw out something that hopefully lets you know what's happening when Jesus is cleansing the temple in John 2. It's this same zeal. This is the man that God is pointing to through David. So when we first hear about David, he's, what is he doing? He's about his father's business. Well, is this the only son you have? Well, there's the young guy, David. He's over there tending the sheep. He's tending sheep. He's a shepherd. Remember Ezekiel 34, I myself will shepherd my people. Remember that? A shepherd. He's about his father's business. You remember what Jesus told his mom and them when they came looking for him? Did you not know that I must be, in Luke chapter 2, about my father's business? David is about my father's business. So you begin to see intimations, glimpses, types, pictures pointing to someone else. David is not the fulfillment, but in him we are getting pictures and glimpses of him who will be the man who fully fulfills God's purpose and who was always about his father's business. So he's taking care of the sheep. So 1 Samuel 16, 11, when Samuel said to Je then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, you know. <laughs> I mean, come on, you've just passed up the cream of the crop. <laughs> I mean, come on, Samuel, you've just passed up all the guys who really had the credentials in the natural to do this. I mean, look at the size of this guy. Look at this guy's muscles. Look at this guy's ability. This man can move the sword better than anybody else. This guy can ride a horse. Look at these men. Who else? Well, David's out there, but he's a kid. He's tending sheep. He doesn't know anything about this stuff. He's out there. He's just, you see, here we have a man who defies the natural way of doing things. God's way of doing things 
defies the natural way. He uses the natural way, but in some ways he defies it by even using the natural ways. So he's keeping the sheep. So in David, with David, God is showing that he will bless the world through a future king. That the seed of the woman will not only be a man, but he will be a ruler. A man after God's own heart. Remember, and I said, John 2, 17, who has a zeal for the purposes of God. A man who will be given all authority. Remember, domain, have dominion. Genesis 1, 28, have dominion. So this man will have all authority in heaven and on earth to conduct the purposes of God. A man who will reign over the creation from his temple city, the new Jerusalem. That is what is beginning to be shown in this man, David. God is beginning to expand and give us a greater appreciation and understanding and a picture of what he is all about. Are we getting this this morning? Do we see this? Are you with me on this? I don't want you to just sit there and think, what is the man talking about and where are we going with this? That's what we're seeing in David. Now, we're doing it very quickly, so maybe if you read the accounts of David in the various places, it will help you to get an expansion on this and an understanding in a greater way. So what is God showing us in David? He's showing us that he's going to bless the world through a future king. He's going to bless the world through a future king. And that future king will be a man after his own heart, as David is. David is fulfilling it only partially. This other king will fulfill it perfectly. This other king will be given all authority. Just as David is crowned king, this other king or this other man will be crowned king. All authority in heaven and earth will be given to this other man. And this man will reign over the creation from his temple city, the new Jerusalem, just as David will reign over Israel from Jerusalem, preparing the way for the construction of the temple. So you see here what God is doing in David. He's using David to point forward to the coming of his Redeemer who will restore all things to God's original purpose and intention in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. With David, the Lord is showing us that his way of restoring man to himself will come to pass in two different phases. In David, he is showing us that God's purpose will come to pass in two different phases. There will be the earthly preparation, which David represents, and then the heavenly application, which David's son, Solomon, will represent. Now, what does this say to anybody in here about the life and ministry of Jesus? How many phases were there to this accomplishment, if you would? Two. There was the earthly ministry of Jesus in preparing the way. And then there's the heavenly ministry of Jesus in making it reality upon the earth. That's what we see here with David. And we'll see that in an extraordinary way next week with Solomon. You see, God was using David to make all the necessary preparations for the construction of his temple. And we see this beginning in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, God's king at war with the king of the world. So let's, let's read 1 Samuel. You begin to see a picture here in 1 Samuel 17 of what kind of a man David will be and what the result of his rule and reign will be and what is God saying about his real king who will come into the future. 
in this chapter 17. So this is an overview picture, I believe, that is worked out in the rest of David's reign. But I think in chapter 17, what the Lord is showing us is a snapshot overview of the whole reign of David and the accomplishment, and then we get the details as we move along in David's life. So let's read together 1 Samuel 17. Verse, I think we begin in verse 45. Remember what's happening. Saul and Israel are shaking in their boots because the Philistines are over here ready to attack and they got this giant big mouth called Goliath. And he comes out there, nine and a half foot tall dude, and he comes out there and says, look, just send your champion against me and he and I will fight. And whichever one of us wins, we win the day. You win, you beat me, we go home, you know, whatever. I beat you, you're our slaves. So you see here this great contest of God's champion versus a champion of man, man's champion. The greatness and the glory and the exaltation of man facing the man of God, the humble, obedient, man of God. The weapons of the world facing the dependence of a man upon an invisible God. You see here what's happening. So then David said to the Philistines, remember Saul, I mean uh, Goliath has been shouting things, hey you people, you know your God ain't nothing and whatever and he is insulting the God of glory and David is inflamed. And David says to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin. You come to me with all the weapons of the world and all the technology and all the wisdom and all the ability and all the whatever of this world system. But I come to you in the name. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. You see where David's dependence is and what David's purpose is in this and why David is inflamed. David is not inflamed for something of or about himself. He is inflamed about something for and about God's integrity. This is what drives him, zeal for the house of God. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly, all these men of Israel may know that the Lord saves not by sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my, our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to da meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. Get that, the forehead. Remember that, what I just said, what the Bible just said. Where? Where did he hit him? He hit him in the forehead. 
the stone sank into the forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out and it of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw this, their champion was dead. They fled. Ah! Now, what scripture from Genesis comes to mind in this confrontation? What scripture in Genesis comes to mind in this confrontation? You should be able to write it on your notes before I tell you. What scripture? Seriously, do you know what scripture comes to mind? The seed of the serpent shall bruise your heel, but the seed of the woman shall crush you where? On the head. Genesis 3.15, do we see what's happening here? We see this great contest. This is a contest showing that David is God's man, but it's bigger than this. It shows that there is a David coming one day who will confront this Goliath this serpent, this Satan, and the battle will wound the seed of the woman, this Messiah. But in this battle, the, the seed of the serpent will try to strike down the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman shall take that weapon, that cross, right out of the hand of Satan and cut off his authority forever over the people of God. Amen? You see, it was a weapon that was formed against Christ by the enemy, God being in it. But in Jesus' death, he took that cross like a sword, and he turned on Satan. Can you say amen? Yes. This wasn't just a poor man being put off to the side, being misunderstood, and being put in the corner and got arrested and died. Poor Jesus. This is God Almighty facing the Goliath of eternity and whipping his behind forever. Yes, thank you. Say it louder. Glory. That's what this is. The seed of the woman. And that's what you see here in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. So let's not see it as, man, look at this big dude. Man, look at that little dude. And, and what, what was slinging? How did he do that? And David, you know, let's see it bigger than this. Let's see it in a cosmic way. It is the immediate fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 to show us that the permanent fulfillment will occur one day on another battleground, another battleground called Gethsemane, another battleground where that man will go to prayer, win the day, and then win the battle at the cross. That's what we see here, the battleground here. What is God's message to us in this victory? God's promise that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent is, will be one day fulfilled by his coming king. That's the message. It's not just a message of Israel and Goliath and, you know, how many, how big was he and how could he be that big and, you know, how can this happen and all that. It is a message about God's way of redemption and God's purpose being fulfilled completely, irrevocably, unstoppably. 
Chapter 17, we see a picture of God's kind of king, one who conquers and subdues God's enemies. Why? So that God's name is honored and worshiped forever. Do you see now, by looking just at this chapter, when we look at 1 Samuel 17, we must look back and remember Genesis 3.15, and we must look forward to John chapter 19, and then we look forward then to Revelation 21 and 22. Because what happened in John 19 is, uh, caused the events of 21 and 22 of Revelation to be made possible. And all of that is prophesied in 3.15, and 3.15 is God's promise because of what he said in 126 of Genesis. You see how the whole Bible is one great work of God, one great tapestry, one great move, not a bunch of stories. Now we'll look at the blessings of this kind of king brings. So let's go through this quickly. First of all, after the death of Saul, remember David became Israel's king. Let's read the account. Let's look at the account in 2 Samuel chapter 5, 1 through 10. After the death of Saul, you remember, and after Goliath and all that, some years later, David is crowned king. So 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Then all the tribes of Israel came to, get, uh, came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince of Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to, uh, to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old. How old? How old? Who else 30? When he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel and Judah 33 years. Who reigned 33 years? Who was on earth 33 years? Who? Uh, what a coincidence. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. In other words, you guys... We can even defeat you with the blind folks. Thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. Uh-oh, Jerusalem, Zion, Jebusites. You see some of these interchangeable names. That is the city of David. And David said to the, on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the, get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who were hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the lame and the blind shall not come into the house. And David lived in a stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So David is crowned. He is anointed king. See, David is a type of Adam. He's anointed king. Finally, there is a man on earth whom God will use to bring forth and fulfill the mandate of taking dominion, have dominion in Genesis 1.28. <clears throat> After conquering Jerusalem, David moved the tabernacle. We won't go all the details because there were some incidents in there. David finally moved the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle was at Shiloh. He moved it from Shiloh finally into the city 
of Jerusalem, thus establishing Jerusalem as not only the city of David, the city where the king lived, but now <clears throat> Jerusalem becomes the city of God. So we begin to see that the temple and the city become synonymous, that the city of Jerusalem now begins to be seen and understood and be referenced as God's temple city. It is a temple city where the temple of God <clears throat> and the rule of his king are one in the same place. And in that we see what is echoed from Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that God's place upon the earth will be his temple location, his sanctuary among men through the rule of his people, which will be fulfilled, you remember, in Revelation 21 and 22. Some of you who remember those chapters in 21 and 22 will realize that what is happening now with David and will continue to happen over the next several years through these successive kings is going to be a picture of and fulfilled in Genesis 1, 20, um, uh, what is it? Revelation 21 and 22. So you see here, we begin to have the association of the city of Jerusalem and the temple and the throne. So you have a throne of David, you have the temple of God, and you have Jerusalem. And it all kind of, if you would, becomes a gumbo, and it all becomes one big issue with God. Not several different things. And so, the city of God. So 2 Samuel 6, 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord, that's the tabernacle, the ark of the covenant, remember, with shouting and with a shout of a horn, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. So now... The, the Jerusalem is now ready to become the epicenter or the location from which God will rule his people through his king for the purpose of causing Israel to become the nation through whom God will expand his image around the world and throughout the entire world. This is God's purpose. Now, we know it's not going to succeed because it won't succeed until the fulfillment comes, but it begins and continues to be the purpose here. And so during the rest of David's reign, David subdues, you remember, all of Israel's enemies, giving Israel rest from all her enemies. So David's ministry is a ministry of conquering and subduing and warfare and struggling. That's what David's ministry is all about. Now, we're skipping over Uriah. We're skipping over Bathsheba. We're skipping over Absalom. We're skipping over all those things. We're just emphasizing the picture of God's redemptive man in David because we know that David failed. And in knowing David failed, we also know that there must come a man one day who will not fail. But until that man comes, every person will fail who is being used by God until that man comes who, in whom there is no failure, and then he will establish his kingdom on earth forever. So in 2 Samuel 7, extremely important chapter, after David has consolidated his rule and has built his own house, he's just built a house for himself, a magnificent palace, he's desiring now to build the house for the Lord, which would replace the tabernacle. So in chapter 7, here's what David wants to do in verses 1 to 3. Now when the king lived in his own house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Remember the tabernacle. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Okay? He presumed God was with him. Now, the Lord sent word through, uh, through Nathan the prophet to David and saying, hey, look, David, you're not going to build my house. 
I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a heritage. I'm going to build your house. Now, I hesitate because I want you to think what that means. God is going to build David a house. Whose house is David's house today? The church. It's a picture of what God would do. Yes, I'm going to have a temple. I'm going to have a house. But you see, your house and my house one day will be the same. Your house and my house one day will be the same house. Your house and my house, he's saying to David, will be the same house, right? The house of God, 1 Peter 2, and David's house will be the same house. That's what God is showing David here. That's what God is saying here. And so, listen to this. Here's what the Lord says to David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, in verse 11 of 2 Samuel 7, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring or your seed, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. All of a sudden, this seed thing becomes a his thing. Do, do you see it? Are you seeing it? You're seeing what God is doing here. There's Genesis 3.15 right here in this verse. I'm going to build you a house. And this seed will come from your body. And he, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. He will do it, but I'm going to show what it looks like through you and your son, but he will do it. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, what is happening here is it is a double deal as so many of the prophecies are. It is an immediate prophecy about Solomon, but it is also an eschatological prophecy, a prophecy of the coming day in the future of God's own son. So it's a double prophecy here. Some of it specifically relates to Solomon, and some of it will not relate to the coming seed because of the issue of iniquity. And when he commits iniquity, that's Solomon, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever I, I got to go and make sure I finish this this is an unequivocal promise of God this is a promise that does not say if you do something I'll do something this is God's promise that is fulfilled in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and 31 that God says I will do this I will do this, and it will be for an ever covenant. So what is the Lord promising? He is promising that the seed of the woman will conquer and subdue the serpent, will be the seed of David, that a king will do this. So remember, David makes all the preparations, and let me just finalize like this. In 1 Chronicles 22, 8 and 9, explain, But the word of the Lord came to me, to David, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house for me because you have shed so much blood before me on the, uh, on the earth. And so then the Lord promises, your son Solomon shall build my house. Your son Shal Solomon shall build my house. And so David in 1 Chronicles 22, 
2 through 5, made all the preparations for all the materials and everything. What are we saying here? What is God saying? David, you've done everything necessary to get things ready. What does the earthly ministry of Jesus accomplish? Everything is ready for what? For the great final purpose of God. Why does Jesus come, live, and go to the cross? Why? Why? So that he may build a house, a living house, where God's people and God will dwell forever. That's what God is after. Next week, we'll see the fulfillment of that, at least in picture form, in Solomon. Thank you.